0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The Catholic Church has been hit by scandal after scandal, with child abuse discovered seemingly everywhere it's investigated. We look into the idea that much could be avoided simply by removing priests' obligation to remain celibate. And if you've been saving up for a lush five-star hotel stay, keep saving. If your visit is on the company, prepare to peel off a few more bills. Even amid price rises in just about everything else, the costs at luxury hotels are eye-watering. But first, The British public were treated to a fairly snappy debate last night between two politicians, one of whom will become Prime Minister in September. Rishi Sunak, a former Chief Finance Minister, sparred with Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, talking taxes, the economy and China, while taking questions from a studio audience.
1: People around the country are struggling with some of the worst cost-of-living problems that we've had for generations. It's hard to pay for fuel, it's hard to pay for food. I would reverse the increase in national insurance. Of
2: course, as prime minister, I'd like to make sure that we always have the policies in place to support people like you who are working incredibly hard to provide for you and your families.
0: Here's the thing, though. It's not the wider public that will make the choice. That is down to members of the Conservative Party. This party leadership contest was launched after Prime Minister Boris Johnson at last made for the door after a series of scandals. Yet both candidates were reluctant to distance themselves from their boss.
2: He's one of the most remarkable people I've met. I was very grateful to him that he gave me that job, and I'm really proud of all the things we achieved in government together.
1: He did a brilliant job of delivering Brexit. He did a brilliant job of delivering an 80-seat majority.
0: For the next six weeks, the pair will be campaigning up and down the country, angling to win over roughly 160,000 paid-up Conservative Party members and hoping not to alienate everyone else as they score points off one another.
3: It was a very acrimonious debate between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. Already this contest has become fairly bitter, fairly confrontational.
0: Matthew Hullhouse is our British political correspondent.
3: You have two candidates who not only clearly don't love each other but there are some real profound ideological divides between them over the direction of the economy. Now Rishi Sunat goes into this debate being behind in the polls according to what we know of the Conservative Party membership so he really needed to try and derail this trust's campaign. From what we saw on the screen and what we know of the polling afterwards it doesn't look like he'd achieved that. And so how did it play out then? Rishi Sunak immediately went on the attack. There is a big gulf between them on economic policy. Tress wants to cut taxes. He argued the consequences of that. Liz, your plans, your own economic advisor, has
2: said that that would lead to mortgage rates, interest rates going up to 7%. Can you imagine what that's going to do for everyone here and everyone watching?
3: Tress fought back very hard against that and she really laid into Sunak's record as chancellor.
1: Everybody thinks that putting up taxes at this moment, is going to hurt the economy. You can't put up taxes and get growth.
3: Well, there was a huge amount of, of the two uh, candidates really so talking over each another, other, interrupting I would each other. We start
1: paying it down it, it, in Liz, three that, years. Liz, that's uh,
2: simply not right. You me, promised almost 40, me, £40 you, billion pounds of unfunded tax cuts.
3: It's becoming an intensely personal Doris. campaign. Nadine Dorries, who is a member of the cabinet, also happens to be the minister responsible for an anti-trolling policy started attacking Rishi Sunak's personal wealth online, remarking how expensive his clothes were compared to the cheapness of Liz Truss's jewellery. After that, both bent over backwards to be complimentary about each other's dress sense.
1: Rishi is a very finely dressed person and I'm a great admirer of his dress sense. I've
2: got enormous respect and admiration for Liz and actually all the other people who spent time in this leadership campaign.
0: So apart from issues such as dress sense, what are the real meaty issues here? What are they campaigning on?
3: This whole campaign is pitched to the Conservative Party electorate. So there's a lot of interest in defence, in China, on immigration. And the dominant dividing line in this campaign is on tax and inflation. The UK, like much of the Western world, is facing high inflation going through to this autumn. Liz Truss's response is to forego or cut taxes on businesses and households.
1: So I'd reverse that increase in national insurance. I'd also have a temporary moratorium on the green energy levy.
3: She says that will provide growth and avoid a recession. Rishi Sunak's argument is that doing so will be inflationary. And whilst he is a small state conservative and wants to cut taxes, he says that he is only willing to do that once the inflation is brought under control.
2: And we need to get a grip of inflation. And if we don't do that now, it's going to cost all of you and everybody watching at home far more in the long run. And you know, it what
3: reflects real ideological differences between them, and also different understandings of the legacy of Margaret Thatcher. They are both committed Thatcherites, but draw very different lessons from her tenure.
0: So you say that is the, the sort of the, the defining debate uh, around this contest. But what about other matters that, that you mentioned there on on foreign policy, on China, etc.
3: What we're seeing through the course of this contest is that positions that were emerging within the Conservative Party really are crystallising and hardening. So one of those is on China. Both candidates are seeking to look tough on China, say they will prioritize the UK's national security interests. Now, that has been government policy for a while, but they really are entrenching that Rishi Sunak is trying to cast off the idea that he's somehow been soft on China.
2: What we do need to do is acknowledge that China is a threat to our national security. It's a threat to our economic security.
3: Secondly is defense and foreign policy. There is no doubt that both candidates will pledge to uphold the commitments that Boris Johnson's administration made to Ukraine. The question is, what does that look like? And what about the public at large, though, who who don't get a look in on this, but who are certainly watching how it
0: plays out? Are, Are these the issues that they care most about?
3: It's fair to say that many of the dominant issues that are agitating the British public are neglected in this debate. So one of those is the State of the National Health Service. We're seeing very long waiting times. We're seeing some really quite dreadful stories about people being left without ambulances arriving. There's not much focus on that at all. There's not a huge amount of talk about policing and crime levels. There's not much talk about what the candidates are actually going to do in the immediate term about gas bills. So obviously, you know, an an internal party leadership contest often reflects the uh, party's internal debate. But this one particularly, so we, we are not getting a huge amount of... Of sense that this is a a debate really anchored in the real challenges facing the u k and individual members of the British public going into what is going to be a really quite tough autumn
0: but as you say the, the the contest is very personal this time around i mean how do the candidates fare on that score what to what what to make of them?
3: So all the surveys of the Conservative Party membership suggest that Liz Truss is well ahead of Rishi Sunyak amongst the Conservative Party's electorate. She is 47 years old. She's been in Parliament since 2010. She has developed as a politician, I think it would be the most generous way of saying. it. Um, about eight years ago, she had an unfortunate reputation of being a really quite eccentric character. She'd made some quite dreadful speeches, you know, really quite... Uh, Unprepped, uh, some dreadfully written jokes. Since then, she's really tried to shake off some of this eccentricity. She's really tried to cast herself in the mould of a second Thatcher.
0: And as for Mr. Sunak?
3: Rishi Sunak has much less political experience, and that is really starting to come through, I think, in some of these debates. Now, he entered Parliament in 2015, he's 42 years old, and he shot to prominence by becoming a young Chancellor. And then shortly after becoming Chancellor, the coronavirus crisis erupted, and he really had to respond with these huge fiscal interventions to bail out families and businesses. I'm proud of my record as Chancellor in helping some of the most vulnerable people over the last couple of years. He trades very heavily on his work during that period. But some of this glossiness is really starting to come off over recent scandals. He was one of the members of Boris Johnson's inner circle to be fined during the Partygate affair. This was over the the parties in Downing Street. He argues that was all terribly unfair and he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then he resigned from Boris Johnson's government, leading to the Prime Minister's Fall Now that's really puts uh, Sunak in in the worst of both worlds because on the one hand, he's tarnished with all the policy mistakes of the Johnson era. At the same time, amongst the Johnsonites, he's seen as a rather disloyal figure. It's a very aggressive, quite hostile campaign. And so all of these sort of tensions and, you know, ancient history really is coming to the surface.
0: But ultimately, this this contest is about a party electing a leader that can win the next general election. I mean, what's your view on, on how that will look on the basis of how this contest has looked?
3: Yes, yeah, so, so the objective of a contest while you're in government like this is to refresh yourself to look like a new outfit. This really is Christmas come early for the Labour Party. They've been taking clips from the debates, running them around Twitter, simply just quoting the candidates' own words back at them. And so rather than an opportunity for the Conservative Party to refresh itself and demonstrate that it has new leaders and a new agenda, what's actually happening is that they're, they're really sort of trashing their own record in office. And it risks actually that some of the animosity of this campaign is going to Get for the next two years, going into the general election.
0: Matthew, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Jason.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
4: With the price of just about
0: everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
4: Over the past 20 years, the Roman Catholic Church has been battered by a seemingly endless succession of child abuse scandals.
0: Jesse Mathewson is the editor of The Economist Explains.
4: The first major story to break was in Boston in 2002, reported by the Boston Globe. Tonight, Boston's Bernard Cardinal Law breaks his silence and apologizes in the case of a former priest accused of molesting children. And since then, scandals have been identified across America, Europe, Australia. Seven decades of sexual abuse. More than half of the victims were aged 14
0: or younger. Money
2: offered to silence the family of two young girls
4: there have been a series of in-depth investigations that have shown systemic problems in Germany and France there are new ones now happening in Portugal and in Spain but we know this is a global problem as well in Africa Asia and Latin America
0: and with this global problem is there is there any indication as to to why it is so prevalent this abuse
4: there's no clear answer to this critics have long argued that the clergy is attractive to predators because being a priest offers you a position of power and access to victims. We see this in other areas, such as sports clubs. It's not unique to the church. But there's also the question of whether celibacy in the priesthood contributes to this. Research on the topic has come to different conclusions, but Australia's Royal Commission on Institutional Child Sex Abuse found in 2017 that enforced celibacy does make abuse more likely. Part of the reason for that is that seminaries where priests are taught don't necessarily sufficiently address the challenges of being celibate while still experiencing sexual desire, and some researchers feel that this means that candidates for the priesthood don't have a healthy sexual development, and that can then lead them later on to abuse. It's a complex issue. There's not a clear answer. But we do know that it's prevalent in the church. So researchers think that between 6 and 9% of Catholic priests and religious figures may be child abusers. It's hard to compare that to the general population because child sexual abuse is massively underreported. But Britain's National Crime Agency estimates that perhaps 1% to 3% of men have an inclination to abuse children, and not all of them will. So it's quite a strikingly higher figure within the Catholic Church.
0: Given that that mandatory celibacy is is so hard for priests, why has it been kept in place for so long?
4: Well... Catholic clergy haven't always been celibate. In the early centuries of the church, many seem to have been married or indeed have had concubines. The idea of celibacy began to gather steam from around the 11th century, and its excellence was reaffirmed at the Council of Trent in the 16th century. But it wasn't codified in canon law until 1917. So it has a long history, but it hasn't always been there. Church leaders argue that foregoing marriage allows priests to emulate Jesus's life and they can devote themselves more fully to their flock. But there are exceptions to the rules even within the Catholic Church. So since the 1980s, married Protestant clergy who convert to Catholicism have been allowed to become priests. And in most Eastern Rite Catholic churches, that's a group of churches that have Different rites and different church law from Latin Catholicism, but which recognize the authority of the Pope. Most of those churches allow already married men to become priests too. And in other places around the world, blind eyes are turned to relationships that priests may have.
0: But with the revelations and and the scope of this becoming clear, are there efforts to to make reforms in the church to, to try to prevent some of this abuse?
4: Yes, The question is really how radical and structural those changes should be. So Germany had a national report into child sexual abuse in 2018. The findings, the systemic abuse that was uncovered, really shocked the country. And in 2019, the Catholic Church set up what's called a synodal path, It's kind of like a citizens' assembly of clergy and lay people to discuss the recent scandals and what the church should do. And the things they're talking about are really quite radical for the Catholic Church. Many members want to end mandatory celibacy in the priesthood. They want ordination for women, probably as deacons, but possibly as priests as well. They want blessings for gay marriages to be allowed. And they want more power for lay people in choosing their bishops and in having a say on the structures of the church. That has caused a pretty predictable backlash from more conservative national churches, particularly in America, Africa, Spain as well. And they accuse the German liberals of using sexual abuse and the scandal around it to dismantle traditional church doctrine. So there's a big divide that's been created between these kind of reforming liberals and conservatives who want to stick to tradition. It's a big divide.
0: And so do you think that divide is is going to get wider or are there moves to bridge it somehow?
4: Well, I think that Pope Francis would love to bring the church together. Those divides go deep. But the church is coming together in a global synod, uh, a synod on synodality. What that means is that all 1.4 billion Catholics around the world have had a chance to talk to their bishops and feedback what they think about the future of the church and the way that The Church Talks Amongst Itself, and that information will get fed up through the hierarchy of the Church to the top tier of bishops who will meet in the Vatican in the autumn of 2023. So it's not clear exactly what that conversation will look like, but it is an opportunity to bring the Church together and to talk about changes that are needed. But it will be really hard to convince some conservatives that any substantive change is necessary. In April, more than 100 bishops, mostly American, but with representatives from every continent, wrote what they called a fraternal letter to Germany's bishops, warning that their synodal pathway had gone too far and that it was putting the unity of the church at risk. I spoke to Thomas Paprocki, who is the bishop for Springfield in Illinois. He was one of the signatories of the letter. And he said, A shepherd has to guide the people. You don't just let them run wherever they want. And the church is not a democracy. He said that's a way for civil government, but not for the Catholic church.
0: But those reforms, if they come, won't come very soon. And in the meantime, that leaves a a great many survivors of abuse sort of unaddressed.
4: Yeah, it does. And that's obviously hugely consequential for survivors of abuse. But it's having a big impact on the church as well. As more sex abuse stories come to light, the faithful are leaving the pews We know this is happening anyway as people leave religion. Catholicism also faces competition from Protestant denominations. But I think abuse is definitely a factor. In America, the share of Catholics attending mass each week fell from 31% in 2000, just before the Boston stories broke, to 17% in 2021. And in Germany, so many people are opting out of paying church taxes, which exist there. That officials who process such requests are actually having to take on extra staff to cope with the demand. In Chile, trust in the church has fallen from around 70% to 20%. Africa, where of course, the population is growing. It's one of the few areas that's expected to have strong growth for the church. But even there, Catholicism isn't expected to grow as quickly as the population will increase. So Pope Francis is facing a bit of a dilemma as he seeks to unify the church and think about its future. He could try and pursue bold reforms, although he would face significant opposition, or he can choose not to act. And the risk there is of slow decline, of more people leaving the church, and of a different kind of Catholic church emerging, and maybe more skewed towards Africa, Asia, Latin America, but also potentially more conservative.
0: Jesse, thanks very much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me, Jason.
0: In recent months, we've spent a lot of time talking about inflation. Wherever you are in the world, prices seem to be going only one way— Those rises hit the poor hardest, particularly when it's food and fuel that's going up. What about at the other end, though? What about the goods and services that were already the province of the well-to-do? Something interesting is happening in the hotel market globally. Callum Williams is a senior economics writer at The Economist.
5: Prices are going up around the world, but they're absolutely shooting up when it comes to the very expensive five-star luxury hotels. To be clear, the prices at lesser establishments are also going up and going up pretty fast. It's just that what's going on at five-star and luxury hotels is that prices are absolutely soaring.
0: How high are we talking here?
5: If you look at the prices in the spring of 2020, i.e. when the COVID lockdowns were first implemented and compare them to the latest prices, roughly for May or June of this year, over that period, they've gone up by about 100%. So they've more than doubled. So just to give a few examples, last year it was possible to find a room at Le Bristol, which is Paris's pretty much best hotel, for under €1,000 a night if you really looked hard enough. No such luck today. They're going for hundreds of euros more per night. If you look at Duke's Hotel, for example, in London, which offers a very delicious and quite famous martini, the one that inspired Ian Fleming, to give James Bond a martini as his uh, drink of choice. Uh, The price for that martini has just gone up and up and up over the past few months and is now considerably over £20 for a single one. There's one Four Seasons outpost that opened in in Napa Valley not that long ago. And even on a pretty slow day, you're looking at spending about $2,000 a night.
0: Please tell me you put a Duke's Bar martini on expenses. I did. Two, actually. I assume you know the saying about this, about the number of martinis.
5: Yes, and, and, and as it happens at Dukes, you are actually only allowed two. They won't give you more than two because they're too strong.
0: Yeah, no, I, I ran out of money before I ran out of ability the only time I've been there. But talk me through the the microeconomics of this here. Why are they going up so fast?
5: So the micro stuff really comes down to two factors. Five-star hotels have lots of staff because part of the idea of a five-star hotel is that you're able to give your guests you know, what they want very quickly and to a very high standard. So what that means is that those hotels are quite exposed to changes in the cost of labour. And as most people know, uh, wages across the rich world, and particularly in places like America, are rising very quickly. So that has a disproportionate impact on the cost base of of fancy hotels. So that's one reason. But then the second reason is to do with margins and, and pricing power. And what's clear is that rich people are less price sensitive than people who are not so rich. That might be because they're traveling for business and they're using a corporate card so they don't really care what they're spending on but it's also because they just have a lot of spare income and a lot of savings and so if prices go up a little bit they don't really notice and so what that's meant is that luxury hotels have found it far easier to pass on higher costs to their customers and therefore preserve their margins
0: presumably though that holds true also for for other luxury goods that are fairly labor-intensive right your handmade cars and the like
5: It does, and often if you read the kind of analysis that's coming out from investment banks and so on about the luxury goods sector, often people are fairly optimistic about the prospects for that particular sector, precisely for the reason you say. The big question really across the corporate world at the moment is which companies are able to pass on higher costs to their customers and which companies are not. And that has really been a sort of distinguishing factor between companies that have done well in the stock market over the past few months and companies that have done badly. If it was possible, which it isn't really, to buy shares in a five-star hotel company that just did five-star hotels, I suspect it would be doing rather well at the
0: moment. Thanks very much for your time, Callum. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow.